This is a message from the ministry of the International Baptist Church of Debrecen. For more information about our church, visit ibcdebrecen.com. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's, it's wonderful to be together in God's house. I uh, always enjoy that. Uh, so, as you might have seen from this little video, we are entering a new, uh, a new season this, this month and this in the coming weeks. And uh, as we do that, we start a new series. We start a series called Come Emmanuel, because Christmas is coming, and uh, we are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But before we enter that season of anticipation, uh, which in some traditions you might know, we call that Advent. You, you know, we, we celebrate this season called Advent, uh, which basically starts four weeks before Christmas, and it's centered around the themes of love, joy, peace, and hope. Well, before that, we still have some time, if my math is correct. And uh, before that, we want to start a new series, and we want to focus on something else. We want to focus on the words of the old prophets before Jesus' time. We want to focus on the prophecies that the Old Testament prophets spoke about about a future king, a future redeemer, a future savior who would come to the nation of Israel, but not just to Israel, but to the whole world. Because this king, this redeemer, this savior would be the king and the savior and the redeemer of the whole world. So today we are starting uh, this new series and we start with a psalm. We start with Psalm 2. But before we go there, let me start with a short story, a little analogy. Now, I'm much, I don't know how much of a hiker you are, but just imagine for the sake of the story that you are hiking, you're a hiker, and you hike in you know, beautiful hills, and suddenly on your path, you see that the path splits, you know, and there's no sign telling which way to go. Now, one path looks well-traveled, wide and easy, curving gently through the woods. Now, the, the other path is narrow, less trodden, and heads straight up the hill. So, you are at the crossroads, and you are wondering which path to take. Now, this scene is pretty much like Psalm 2, because in, psalm, the, in this psalm, you know, the psalm sets before us two paths, one of human rebellion and the other of submission to God. Now, the white, white path, like the one in our literal analogy and story, represents, you know, the, the temptation of, of going our own way and following, you know, the crowd, thinking we know best. While the narrow path, the other way, though less appealing at first glance and maybe seeming less comfortable, leads to truth and to life and to God himself. So, as we explore this psalm, think, think about this choice, you know. Each day, in big and small ways, we stand at similar crossroads. Which path will we choose? The easy, wide path of you know, following our own desires uh, or the narrow, challenging path of following God's way? So let's get into Psalm 2 and see what it has to say about these choices. So if you have your Bible with you, I would like to ask you to open it up or otherwise just follow on the screen. We are going to uh, read uh, the whole Psalm of Psalm 2. Starting at verse 1, uh, we read Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers bend together. 
against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. So, we are presented with a world where it seems that everyone thinks they know better than anyone else, including God. And if you think about it, that's pretty much, you know, the world we live in today. And that's the same kind of image that we see in this first section of the psalm. You know, the psalmist poses a question. He asks a, he asks a question in the first verses. He says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? You know, this, this question actually reminds me of another story from the Bible, the story of Babel, you know, from Genesis 11, where people thought they could build a tower to reach heaven, only to find that uh, their efforts were confounded by God. Now, in Psalm 2, the focus is on earthly powers, kings and rulers who challenge God's authority. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And, you know, even though this psalm is an ancient psalm, I mean, it, it's thousands of years old, but the problem it's presenting and the problem it's talking about is not an ancient problem. It's a modern one too. It reflects the human tendency to resist God's guidance, seeing it, you know, as something restrictive or something outdated that is, is, not, is not good for us anymore. You know, religion is for, for the old folks. We don't need it. While the Bible is pretty much full of examples that, that mirror this kind of attitude. In Exodus, for example, Pharaoh's heart hardens repeatedly against God's command through Moses, which eventually leads to disastrous consequences. In Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, we read about the king of Babylon who exalts himself above God, only to be brought low. You know, these stories are not just historical accounts. They are mirrors. They are mirrors that reflect the human heart and the tendency to rebel against God. You know, the Bible says that we are all rebels against God and his authority, all of us, no exception. And that's what the Bible says about the human heart. And this kind of rebellion, you know, it, it, has, a, it has a cause, there's a, there's a root cause for it. And most of the times it's born out of a desire for, for freedom and self-determination. I mean, how many times you hear that around you uh, that you should, you should be independent, right? When you reach uh, adolescence uh, or you become a young adult, people are asking, hey, when are you moving out from your parents? Like, when are you moving to your own place? Or later, you know, uh, when you, when you uh, start to work or, uh, or the bigger things of life come, 
you are you are seeking independence. You you want to be free, and people are telling you that you know you should be independent, you should be free. But the Bible warns us. The Bible tells us that sometimes things might look good at first glance. That kind of freedom that you are looking for, it looks good, but it might lead to destruction. Proverbs 14, 12, for example, says that there is a way that appears to be right. That is true. There are a lot of ways. But in the end, it leads to death. So this, this is a reminder. It's actually a sobering reminder that what we often perceive as freedom can be the very thing that leads to our death and ensnares us. You know, the, the rulers and the nations here in Psalm 2, in this first part of the psalm, they talk about chains and shackles that they want to broke. But these chains and shackles they perceive, they are not bonds of oppression. God is not oppressing people. He's not oppressing humanity. They are the loving boundaries set by a caring God. You know, some of you are parents, and all of you are children in some sort, and you know how a parent sometimes has to set some rules for a child's safety to protect them. Where God's commands are designed for our own protection and are flourishing in the same way. Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, did you observe the order there? Jesus says that if you hold to my teaching, then yes, you are my disciples. And if you are my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So true freedom, therefore, is, is not found in, you know, in casting off God's authority, but it's found actually in embracing God's authority. And in our own lives, uh, in our own lives we face this choice daily. Do we align ourselves with the words push for autonomy and independence and freedom away from God? That's the main point, away from God. Or do we recognize that true liberty and freedom is found in submission to his will? So as we, as we reflect on these verses, let's, let's just ask ourselves, are we like the nations and the rulers in Psalm 2, you know, striving for freedom and, and independence that eventually leads to Futility? Or are we seeking the true freedom that comes from living within God's loving boundaries? Now, in the second part of the psalm, we see that God um, has, a, has a response to this defiant uh, people. And we see the psalmist reveals to us that he who sits in the heavens laughs. So at first, we might think that, well, God probably is, you know, amused by these people and uh, he finds them funny or he finds this whole situation comical. But I don't think this is a laugh of amusement, as if God finds the rebellion, you know, comical or something. Instead, I think it's a laugh that comes from absolute confidence and sovereignty. It's like watching a parent smile knowingly as their toddler declares that they can cook, you know, dinner all by themselves. The parent knows the reality and the limits of the child's capabilities. So this image of God laughing in the heaven reminds us of his transcendent power and wisdom. 
He's not threatened by human rebellion. It's not like God is, you know, surprised by, by the nations rebelling against him or by people rebelling against him. He's not threatened by this. And it's a theme echoed throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 40, 22, God is described as sitting above the circle of the earth with its inhabitants like grasshoppers. I mean, that's stark contrast between God and people. So this perspective puts our human attempts to defy God into context. You know, they, they are futile, and not because our struggles or our efforts don't matter, but because they are ultimately under God's sovereign control. So God's response to the rebellion is not just passive observation. He's not just sitting in heaven and looking at these people and just having a good laugh. No, he actively shows his authority. He declares, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So this is a powerful statement. It's God affirming that, you know, despite human efforts, to the contrary, he has a plan and he's actively working it out. His plan centers on a figure, on a chosen king that he is later talking about here. And, you know, this concept of, of uh, God installing his king ties pretty much with other parts of scripture. For example, in Daniel 2.21, we learn that God changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. So God, he is the ultimate authority behind the rise and fall of nations and leaders. And in the New Testament, this idea finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who is described in Revelation 19.16 as King of kings and Lord of lords. So in this section of Psalm 2, we are reminded that no matter how chaotic, how crazy, or out of control our world may seem, God is still sovereign. He is still sovereign, and he is not cut off guard by the, by the events on earth, like it, it's kind of a surprise to him. Instead, he is actively working out his purposes, which eventually culminate in the reign of his son, Jesus. Now for us, this is both comforting and challenging. It's comforting to know that God, our God, is in control, even when things seem out of hand. But it's also challenging because it causes us to recognize and to submit to God's ultimate authority as expressed through his son, Jesus. So as we reflect on these verses, let's ask ourselves, do we trust in God's sovereignty even when we don't understand what's happening around us? And are we willing to submit to his plan, recognizing Jesus as a true king? Now after this, the psalm pretty much takes, a, I would say, a dramatic turn because uh, God says and speaks some really interesting things here about the person he calls his son. Uh, he declares, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now this statement in uh, its original context uh, was understood as part of God's covenant with David, promising that his lineage, you know, would have special role in God's plan. And that is true. God had a special plan with David and all of his descendants. However, for us as followers of Christ, these words leave across centuries and they point directly to Jesus. And this declaration that God is making here, you are my son, it's a royal one. 
and it's echoing the kind of proclamation, you know, a king would make about their heir. You know, when a king would choose an heir, most of the times he would choose his son and he would declare his son as his heir. For example, in 2 Samuel, we have an example of this. In 2 Samuel uh, 7, verses 12 and 14, God tells David this, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. So while this initially applied to David's son, who was Solomon, God was talking about him, it ultimately points to Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, because Solomon's throne of his kingdom did not endure forever. Actually, at the moment, there's no such thing as king of the Jews. For, so, for a long, long, long time, there was no such thing as king of the Jews. But we know about one person who would fulfill this promise. And that is Jesus. His throne of his kingdom will endure forever. And this authority given, given to this son of God is immense and absolute. And the psalmist says he will rule with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. And this image is, is pretty vivid. It speaks of a rule that is unyielding and is powerful. Well, in Revelation 19, 15, this imagery is picked up again to describe Jesus. Because there, in that verse, we read that he will rule them with an iron scepter. So this picture is a, is a vivid picture. It's a powerful picture. But it's not a picture of a tyrannical ruler, but of a king whose authority is so complete that no rebellion no matter how strong, can stand against it. Now, the idea of Jesus, you know, ruling with an iron scepter may seem intense to us, uh, especially in our modern context where we value democracy and we pretty much fear autocracy. But we must understand this in the light of Jesus' image, in the light of Jesus' nature and character. Because Jesus is not just a king. He is a loving, just, and righteous king. And his rule, though absolute, is also characterized by love, grace, and truth. In John 14, we learn that Jesus came full of grace and truth. So if that's his character, that's also the character of his rule and his kingdom. Now this part of the psalm challenges us to consider our response to Jesus' authority. Do we accept his rule in our lives, acknowledging his absolute sovereignty or do we resist preferring to maintain our illusion of control the image of jesus with an iron scepter is a reminder that the ultimate authority belongs to him and true wisdom lies in submitting to his rule and this submission is not oppressive jesus goal is not to oppress us or to enslave us it's liberating because it aligns us with the purpose of a king whose reign is marked by goodness, love, and eternal truth. So, as we're reaching the conclusion of Psalm 2, the tone shifts to, to a tone of invitation. The psalmist uh, puts out here an invitation. He addresses the king and rulers 
whom he talked about in the first part, who actually are representing all of humanity, not just kings and rulers, with a crucial piece of advice. He says, be wise, serve the Lord with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Now this is a call to recognize the reality of God's sovereignty and to respond appropriately. And the climax of this call comes in the form of a pretty interesting directive. I don't First, I, I, when I read this, it seemed pretty weird to me. I don't know, maybe to you as well. It says, he's the son, lest he be angry and you be distorted in your way. Okay, so first I read this, I was like, oh, what is going on? But this term, which is actually the title of this sermon, this message, to kiss the son, is, is actually a, obviously a symbolic act. And it's a symbolic act of reverence, submission, and allegiance. You know, it's, it's an image rich in meaning, and it's actually drawing a lot, of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things from cultural practices of the time. For example, in 1 Samuel 10.1, when Samuel anoints Saul, he kisses him, signifying Saul's anointment as king by God's decree. So this act of kissing was a public acknowledgement of Saul's new authority and position. So in the context of Saul, uh, Psalm 2, this call to kiss the son means it has a significant uh, meaning for us believers. Because it's not just about merely showing respect. It's about recognizing and embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And this involves more than just words and just mere lip service. It requires a genuine submission and commitment to follow his ways. It's an invitation to align ourselves with the ultimate reality of Christ's kingship, to live under his lordship in every aspect of our lives. And this submission is not of fear and dread, but one of awe and reverence. You know, the psalmist says uh, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And this, this might seem like a, like a paradox of you know, combining fear and, uh, and uh, joy, but I think this is the proper way to, to describe the, the appropriate answer that you, that you give to God's grace and majesty. It's fear and joy. Fear because you know that this being who's up there in heaven is the very same being who spoke the universe into existence. He spoke you into existence. And when you, when you encounter such a being like him, you cannot do anything else but do what Isaiah said and say, woe to me, I am dead. And pretty much everyone who encountered the, the presence and the, and the living presence of the holy God thought that they're going to die because he's just so different. He's just something else, nothing that we are used to. So the proper response to that is fear. Not a kind of fear where you are horrified or terrified, but a fear of respect and acknowledgement and reverence. But it's not just fear. It's also joy. Because the psalmist says, rejoice with trembling, which is an interesting way of uh, putting it. But it's joy because you know that this God, this being, this holy being, is also a loving and gracious God. You know, we hear this many times today from other people who try to, uh, you know, uh, dilute 
uh, God's image, especially his uh, justice and his, uh, and his uh, uh, truthfulness, people say that God is a God of love. You heard that before, I'm pretty sure. God is a God of love. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible never says that. God is not a God of love. It's not like love is just one attribute of God's attributes. Look at what John says in 1 John 4, 8. It says, God is love. God is not just a God of love. He is love. His character, his personality is defined by love. So even when he exercises justice and righteousness, which he does perfectly, all of those are characterized by his nature, which is rooted in love. So, God is not just a God of love. He is love. So Jesus himself invites to this kind of relationship. In Matthew 11, 28, 30, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this invitation to a yoke that is easy and and to a burden that is light is a stark contrast to a heavy and destructive yoke of rebellion against God. So as we ponder on on this part of the psalm, we're invited to consider our own response to Jesus' lordship. How do you respond? Are we like the defiant nations and rulers seeking to cast off God's authority? Or have we chosen to kiss the Son, embrace His rule in our own lives? Because this choice is the fundamental choice to our faith journey. It's about aligning ourselves with the ultimate truth of Christ's reign, finding in him not only our king, but also our savior, the source of true freedom, peace, and joy. So this prophecy, as most prophecies, must have a fulfillment, right? I mean, that's what a prophecy is about most of the times. Prophecies have fulfillments. And it might seem obvious for us Christians, you know, with more than 2,000 years of tradition and history behind us of brothers and sisters walking down you know, many, many, many different ways and paths to assume and say that this psalm is talking about a son who is the son of God and who is Jesus Christ. But why is that the case? Why is it that Jesus is that son that the psalmist is talking about here? Well, I think, first of all, we have to consider a couple of things. We have to consider that this person the psalmist is talking about, um, is not an angel. So, if this person is not an angel, then uh, we take into, considerations, uh, into consideration passages like Hebrews 1.5, where the writer of Hebrews says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have become your father. Again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Not an angel. So then we are left with only one other choice, you know, excluding the animals. We we have humans. So the only available choice that we have are humans. And God, you know, humanity has a special place 
in his heart. We know that. We know that from passages like Psalm 8:5, where God, uh, where uh, we read that God have made them, humanity, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So if it's not an angel, then it's a human. It's a man. So this man, whom the psalmist is talking about, who is the ultimate king and ruler, must be no one else than Jesus. And we know this not because we connect some fuzzy dots. We know this because the Bible tells us so. Paul himself says this in Pisidian Antioch when he talks in the synagogue in Acts 13. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you're my son. Today I have become your father. Or other places like Hebrews 5.5, in the same way Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So this future king that the psalmist is talking about is Jesus Christ. He is the future king that will rule with an iron rod. And his rule and his kingdom will be marked by goodness, by love, and by justice. So, as we conclude our journey through Psalm 2, it's really important to recognize that this psalm, though ancient, speaks to our lives directly today. It's not just a historical account of nations rebelling and rising against God's sovereignty. It's a story that is a mirror to our lives, to our daily lives, our choices, and our relationship with God. Every day, we stand at a metaphorical crossroads. Remember from the beginning that analogy? You are faced with a decision to either follow our own desires or to wake, walk in God's ways. And choosing to kiss the sun is, you know, it's about much more than a physical gesture. It's a matter for, for our wholehearted commitment to Jesus. To honor and submit to him is to acknowledge his rightful place in our lives and in the world. And in doing so, we find a freedom that the world cannot offer. A freedom rooted in truth and love and eternal life. So let's remember that no matter how crazy or chaotic or uncertain the world may seem, God's plan is steadily unfolding. In the midst of political turmoil or social unrest or personal trials and the so many other challenges of daily life, God remains sovereign. His purposes are being worked out and the center of his plan is Jesus Christ, his son. And this truth should bring us immense comfort and peace. In a world where instability and change are the only constants, the unchanging nature of God's plan and his love for us is a source of enduring hope. Jesus, the son, is our anchor in the storms of life, the unshakable foundation on which we can build our lives. So as we move forward from here, let's carry with us the lesson from Psalm 2. May we live as people who have chose to honor the Son, who have chose to kiss the Son, embracing His rules, His rule in our hearts and our lives. Let's be beacons of His love and grace and truth in a world that so desperately needs it. 
and may we find joy and peace in the assurance of his loving reign. And remember, in the words of Romans 8, 38, 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we have all we need for life, hope, and eternal joy. So, let's go forth in confidence, living as faithful followers of our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your, who you are. You are sovereign. You are the ultimate ruler of the world. Jesus, you are our king. You are the king of the universe. And we acknowledge that. We acknowledge your power. We acknowledge who you are. And we are so thankful that your rule is marked by love, by grace, by truth, by justice, by righteousness. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us and you would prepare us to be part of this kingdom, to be partakers of this kingdom. We ask you that you would also prepare us to go forth and represent this kingdom in the world. We want to tell people about this amazing kingdom. We want to talk about the gospel of the kingdom. So help us, Holy Spirit, in this. Help us in recognizing you, Jesus, as our true King and our Lord, and also proclaiming you as our Lord to other people around us as well. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for lending us your ears and your time today. If your curiosity has been piqued and you'd like to learn more about our church and the work we do, please feel free to visit our website at ibcdebretson.com. Better yet, we warmly invite you to join us in person and experience our community firsthand. We look forward to welcoming you 